Welcome to the Eden Podcast, where we think again about the Bible on women and men, and we start with the correct understanding of what happened in the Garden of Eden back in the beginning. Today, we'll be hearing from Bruce C. E. Fleming, founder of the True 316 Project. He's a former academic dean and professor of practical theology. The foundation of the True 316 Project is based on the research of Dr. Joy Fleming, who wrote the book, Man and Woman in Biblical Unity, Theology from Genesis 2 to 3. Do you know what the 11 Hebrew words mean that God spoke to the woman in the Garden of Eden? Bruce and Joy put that and more in the Book of Eden, Genesis 2 to 3. We invite you to get a copy today and make sure you have a solid foundation for understanding the seven key passages on women and men in the Bible. It turns out when Genesis 3.16 becomes clear, all the other passages become clear too. You can learn more at our website, true316.com. That's tru316.com. And now enjoy today's episode of The Eden Podcast. The focus of this episode is the marriage model, or the model marriage. But first, I want to focus on you. Why are you important to this episode of the Eden Podcast, to any episode of the Eden Podcast, to every episode of the Eden Podcast? You are important because we're talking about what the Bible says what it clearly says when we clear up the pollution clouding over Genesis 3.16. And the Bible, God inspired every word in it to speak to you. Another and an important 3.16 verse in the Bible is in 2 Timothy 3.16. Let me grab my Bible here and take a look at that. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. We have these four things going on, and what's, what's going on in this episode of the Eden Podcast. This is a joyful portion of Genesis 2 and 3. Everything's good here. This is the part where everything's getting better and better in the pattern of Genesis 2 and 3. I love this section of the Garden of Eden. And so we're going to take a look at how we have a marriage model going on. I taught this in some African villages up and down the Bosabola Road, and I, I wanted to make sure that everybody got it right. And there was some teaching that was abroad in the villages that, that wasn't right. And so I used a pattern, a communication pattern, to see if I could have fun with my listeners and also catch them and then correct them. And one of the things in, in, uh, in the oral presentation in Lingala that I used, the African language there among the Mono and the Gombe peoples, was that uh, you ask them a question and you say, is it, is it this? And then if it is, they, they respond in a certain way. And uh, they, they say yes, but the way they say yes is e. So everybody just, you can hear everybody going e. <laughs> and uh, I had to get used to that when I first heard it, but then I, I got with it. So. I said, is it this? E. So I said, now let's talk about what it takes to get married. And I'm up, I'm up in front of a little pulpit. We've got the grass roof over top of our head and their, and their little local churches and mud floors. And so I'd say, so when it was time for Adam and Eve to get married, did Adam leave his family? E. 
And then did he cleave to his wife? E. And then did they have lots of children? E. Then I would wait. And usually somebody in the back of the room would be digging through their Bible quickly and just checking. And then they would hesitate. They didn't, they were very polite. They didn't want to correct me, but they, they did. And they'd raise their hand and they'd say, well, that last one about, you know, you're, you're only married when you're, because you've had many children. That, that's not in Genesis chapter two, pastor. And I said, that's right. It's not. And so what I want us to think about is what are the steps? What are the portions of the model that God gives us for marriage? Now, there's all kinds of marriage all around the world, and uh, we have successes, and we have lots of failures. And what I want us to see is that this is the ideal pattern. And if we can follow the ideal, that's all the better. So we have to know what it is. Uh, let's turn to the Book of Eden, and we're in Chapter 3, which happens to already, wow, it's all the way up to page 51, Study Guide Number 3. And as I've mentioned before, the study guides were not written by me. They were written by Joanne Hagemeyer. Hi, Joanne. Hi. So we've got Joanne with us for the, for the study guide here, and she's going to keep me honest. And I'll just start in right now with this part, though, if you don't mind, Joanne, and uh, I'll read the first couple paragraphs. Study guide number three, Genesis Marriage Model. While my wife Joy and I were doing our doctoral studies in Strasbourg, France, I gained access to a centuries-old copy of the translation John Calvin used of the Bible into French. It didn't have verse numbers in it. Instead, in the column, in the margins, it said A, B, C, and D, which was really strange for me to look at that. Another thing that was strange for me to look at was his commentaries. In Calvin's commentaries on the Bible, I saw that Calvin had misinterpreted the word in Genesis 2.18 that we looked at in the previous episode that means partner or help, easer. And he described the woman as being like a cook's helper. Calvin held the false doctrine that woman had been created to be subservient to man. This chapter study in the Book of Eden focuses on God's marriage of the man and woman and what God had in mind for marriage. But Joanne, you want to start us here and with exercise number one? Certainly. The first exercise is to establish what God was revealing to the man about an ideal counterpart. And it happens, I think, earlier than people realize. So the first question asks us to go into Genesis, that's chapter two, and look at verse seven, then at verse 15, and finally at verses 18 through 20, and ask, what did the man observe about the animals and birds, and also himself, that showed him he was unique and alone as a human being. So that first verse there in uh, chapter 2, verse 7, do you have that open? Uh, let's see. I'm on page chapter 3, chapter 1, getting there. Chapter 2, verse 7. Yes, I'm using the NIV in this episode. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Yeah, so how would that make him different than the animals? We don't have details on how God created the fish and the birds and the microbes and uh, the planets and stuff. Pretty soon here in the chapter 2, we will see God's making the animals for him right in front of him out of the, out of the dirt. But we don't see anything about 
the breath of life being breathed into the nostrils of the other creatures. I think in this sense, we're seeing the soul of the person we know, or the spirit. We, we know that we are eternal beings, uh, everlasting beings. We have a start, but we don't have an end. And that's where it's happening right here. God breathes the breath of life into the nostrils of the first human. Which is such a profound thought. And then we move into this next verse, which is another thing that makes the man a bit different than the animals. Verse 15. So a lot of people don't realize that God did not create the man in the Garden of Eden. First, God created the man in the earth. And then God made the Garden of Eden. He got the watering system all set up and had everything going. And then verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And uh, the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of that, you will surely die. So in all that, we're seeing God give the man or this human being, which is different than the animals, something also different to do. We talked in a, a previous episode about the name of God, by the way. Mm -hmm. So like in Genesis chapter one, the, well, all of Genesis chapter one, the name of God is Elohim mm -hmm. and ends with an im, which is like an S in English, which is normally a, a plural ending, but there's just one God. But we also talked about the three persons in the Trinity who are part of this. The interesting thing in Genesis chapters two and three is that the, the Hebrew adds another name to God. So we have a compound name. It's not just Elohim, but it's also Yahweh Elohim. And then later on, after the creation of all of the six days and then the Garden of Eden, and we move into the relationship of God outside the Garden of Eden, we don't see the name Elohim used again there. It's, it's just the Yahweh, which is the relational portion, the relational aspect of God and, and us. And so right now it's great. We've got the creator relating to, to the man. And that is a very unique thing uh, that distinguishes us from the critters, the uh, creatures that God made. And then God said something very intriguing about the man. And it's the third set of verses that we're to look at that help the man understand how different he is than the creatures. And it starts there in verse 18. It's 18 through 20. The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a suitable helper for him, or as we know, strong ally, or as we know, equal partner. So I will set up a, a pair of partners here. 19. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was his name. And that's a naming formula too, you know, sort of like I dub you Sir Lancelot. So I name you uh, Captain Peacock or whatever. Uh, verse 20, so the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air and all the beasts of the field. But for the man, no suitable partner was found. And so that's such a long list of things that God made and that the man saw and the man named. I just wonder how he saw himself as unique and alone apart from all of these creatures. I, you know, he had uh, Bambi and Thumper and, uh, you know, he had all these wonderful little critters around him. I saw a dead squirrel today and I felt bad. I didn't know the squirrel before and I don't know if it was a good squirrel. 
but I felt bad that that little squirrel was dead. And, uh, but it wasn't a squirrel that had ever visited with me or talked to me. And I couldn't care for it. It wasn't something that was sick that I could help. It was dead. So the relationship that God had with the man was great. The, the friendship, the interaction, the partnership they had. But the relationship that the man had with the animals, you know, maybe there were some dogs, so man's best friend. That was great. And the dog was happy and wagged its tail. But we can't talk to them, really. We can't have that relationship. So the man was alone in more ways than one. It really does seem so. And it's a great story about the squirrel. I guess I hadn't thought about it that way. You can really love a creature, but it's not the same thing, is it? No. And the man knew that because the man already had a relationship to compare that to. But then God does something amazing. And so now we're in verses uh, 21 and 22. So the Lord God, that's the Yahweh Elohim, caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, or he took part of the man's side, and closed up the place with flesh. That's nice. He completed that operation. Then the Lord God made a woman from that portion that he took from the man. And eventually then, we, it says, he brought her to the man. So why do you think God made the woman in this way? I mean, it's an unusual way. God had not created anything else in this way. And maybe to help us out, we can look at some of these passages that talk about who God is. And we start with Genesis 1, 1 through 3. So that's the question on the page of, uh, at the top of page 52 of the Book of Eden. In Genesis 1, 1 to 3, we learn there about who Elohim is. We have in verse 1, God the Father created uh, the heavens and the earth. That's verse 1. In verse 2, the Holy Spirit hovered over the, the deep. And in verse 3, the Word spoke and brought things into being. So we actually have the three members of the Trinity acting together and creating everything that was. So we have their unity of purpose, their unity of action, uh, and we have the community among the three persons in the Godhead. Which is also what we see in Genesis 2.23 and Genesis 2.24 is Elohim creating humankind in our own image. God said. And that brings us to Deuteronomy 6, 4, which is often called the Shema. And it talks about how uh, Israel is to acknowledge that the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. So here, O Israel, the Lord is one. And the word one there is the word echad in, in Hebrew. It's not a counting word for one, like one, two, three, four. You know, it's more of a, 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 a counterparts. The, the contents are multiple, but they're made up into one unit. Interesting, that, that's what we find in the verse 24 in Genesis chapter 2. This is where Scripture interprets Scripture. We can find out what echad means when, so God took, the, took one man, and from that one body, he made two humans. And now when those two humans are united in marriage, then we get one. And the word for one is this combination of, of un, uh, parts, it's echad. So God takes two out of one, and then he takes the two and puts them back into one. That's what the ideal for marriage is. So a picture is beginning to form of what's happening here and what God is doing. In uh, the Gospel of John, John 1, 1 through 3, also talks about 
that same idea of God three in one, John 10, 30, um, and John 17, 11, all have those ideas. But then we get to Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. And this is where Paul is revealing a mystery that comes back to this passage. I love this passage. It's so important that we actually made it book two in the Eden book series. Book two is called Beyond Eden, Ephesians 5, 15 to 6, 9. So if you look up on Amazon or wherever, you can see the book of Eden. That's book one. And then you can see Beyond Eden. That's book two. And we're going to see what that means in these verses here. What, what's beyond Eden is that Paul calls this a great mystery. Not just a mystery, but a great mystery. Every time he uses the word mystery, it's, it's a big deal. It's a revelation. It's not a hidden thing. And like, ooh, there's a mystery floating in the air. No, uh, the, the Greek New Testament meaning for the word mystery is something that was previously hidden, but now is revealed. And whenever we have a revealed mystery in the New Testament, that's great. But, but he uses the word now together. He calls this a great mystery. This is a big time revelation that's coming up. But he introduces it with a verse that's quoted right out of the end of Genesis chapter 2. So he says in Ephesians 5, 31 and 32, by the way, I, I have to say this. The way Genesis 2 and 3 is put together is like a rainbow. It's called a chiasm. And the high point is where the man and the woman are naked and unashamed and they're in the garden. And that's the good time and the good point in Garden of Eden. Well, we have the same kind of a structure. I think Paul borrowed exactly what he, he knew what was going on in Genesis 2 and 3. And he built this passage from 5.15 to 6.9 in Ephesians. And the high point is verse 33. So we're building right up to it with verse 31. He says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Verse 32, this is a great mystery. And I'm talking about Christ and the church. So what he's saying is that the unity that the man and the woman experience, this akad oneness in Genesis 2, and walking together with each other and with God in the Garden of Eden was, was a very, very special relationship. But when the Holy Spirit is inside of believers, and when we're together in the church, and we are united one with another in the church, and with Christ in one body, and with the whole Spirit of God and the God the Father, that is the most wonderful relationship we can talk about. And that's why I titled that book, Beyond Eden. We've got the great relationship in the Garden of Eden in book one, but we go beyond Eden with Paul's exposition in Ephesians 5. So that kind of pulls it all together. The foundational stories found in chapter two and three go clear through the Hebrew scriptures and then into Paul's writing about marriage, all ties together. I was wondering if you actually could give us an idea of what an ideal, like a marriage model would be or a model marriage, an ideal pattern. When I was working with the people in the villages, we were talking about three things, but the more I studied it, the more I realized there were four and not five. So one of the things they said in, in marriage was that, uh, you know, if you, if you don't have any babies, then that doesn't really count as a marriage. And uh, it, you can get rid of the wife because it was always her fault was the thought and uh, get another wife or you could get a second wife and make sure you have some babies that way. Uh, that does, that's just not part at all of the model. 
It's very interesting that in Genesis chapter 2, there's nothing said about having children at all. Even though the promise was was to, to the man and the woman, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. When he describes the steps in the marriage and gives the model for marriage, he doesn't talk about having babies. Instead, he talks about these four things. One, the man and the woman each knew God personally. The man knew God all by himself in the Garden of Eden. And the man was out cold. He was asleep when Eve was created. She knew God personally. They had a relationship. And then God brought the two together and, and married them. So the first thing is that ideally, this is not the way it is all around the world, I know, but the ideal is that first, each member of the married couple to be knows God personally. Second, we have a social event. It says that the man leaves his mother and father. Now, if I'm going to leave my mom and dad, they're going to know it, at least in this sense. I leave my mom and dad, and grandma and grandpa know it, and my sister knew it, and, you know, it's a social thing, and the word gets around, and the neighbors know it, and everybody in the church knows it. There is a, there is a societal involvement here. There is a specific, widespread understanding that there is a moment in my life when this new family unit is being established. So that leave is the establishment of a family publicly known. And a lot of cultures gloss over that, and we have problems because of that. The third step is, and sometimes people jump ahead and they think we're talking about sexual relations, but it's not. It says that he cleave. He, the man will leave and he will cleave. That's the old English. He will unite. He will hold fast. This we have as a model from Ruth. Ideally, I think that's the greatest example of Ruth. It says that uh, Ruth... Uh, held fast to Naomi. When was this? Well, Naomi had two daughters-in-law and Ruth or Naomi was going to go back to Israel and worship the one true God. But her two daughters-in-law were from a pagan country and they had their own gods. Naomi's two sons had died and these daughters-in-law, now she was just going to say, I'm going to go back to my country. You two gals, you can stay here in your country and worship your own gods. But along the way, Ruth had come to worship the one true God. And she says, no, I'm not going to leave you. And she clings, she holds fast to Naomi. And she says, uh, your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. Where you go, I will go. See, So the unity right there, that's, that's this depth of relationship that marriage involves. So there's no saying, well, we're gonna try it out for a couple of months and see how it goes and then break. No, no, we have this total commitment and this uniting. And then the fourth one is, and Dr. Joy Fleming, my wife says, it's not just physical, but it's emotional as well. And even more than that, the, the two become one again. So at this point now, there is the sexual union and that's, that's what happens and that's what's involved. I have problems with the way people now take sexual unions lightly and well, we can do it now, we can do it later, we can do it with all kinds of people. It's very clear in the marriage model that this is important and it's to be done by two people who know God. There is a an agreement in the society that we're starting a relationship here that's going to last and we're going to start a family, that uh, we are committing ourselves, each other, to this one partner, and then there's the physical union at the end of that. So those are the four steps in the marriage model. And it's all just right there, right in the scriptures. In fact, uh, exercise two talks about understanding this atzav, this leaving and cleaving, which is dabak. And we do go into the story of Ruth, but we also look at Joshua 22, verse 5, and compare it with Ruth 
chapter 1, verse 14, to understand what this cleaving means. So Joshua chapter 22. When I was young, we used to have what they called a sword drill. The Bible being the sword of the Lord, and they would have a drill, and the people in the youth group would see who could get to the verse first. So we're having a little sword drill here. I'm flipping through the pages, and I've got Joshua 22, verse 5. But be very careful to keep the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to obey his commands, to hold fast to him, and to serve him with all your heart and your soul. And I think what you're talking about, that hold fast, is to, is to cling mm -hmm. to him. This is a very important total commitment of a relationship to God. And then you say something uh, in the study guide up on uh, page 53. It talks about, oh, talking about God three in one and how that's revealed in the study guide also sends us back to the first one, which um, asks to explain how Genesis 2.25 is at the apex of this chiasm that you talked about. So it would be great if you could say some words about that and then the text that's there. So a lot of people try to figure out what is the structure of Genesis 2 and 3. And Dr. Joy Fleming is the first person at the time we were doing this research who came up with and said, right there, there it is, 225. That's the middle. That is the high point. We have it builds and gets better and better in Genesis chapter 2. And then we have the attack in Genesis 3 and things get worse and worse. They they come, we have entry into the Garden of Eden and it gets better in Genesis 2. And then we things get worse and then we have exit from the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. But the ideal of the marriage model and the relationship is in 2.25. And what do we see there? Well, it doesn't just have to do with him and her. It has to do with him and her and God. And so what it says is that they were in the garden, they were naked, and they were unashamed. Naked before each other. They had that complete, total relationship, physical uh, oneness. But they were unashamed, too. And who would that be in relationship to? That's in relationship to God. So we have this spiritual unity, we have this marital unity. That's really great. That's what people think of as, as life in the Garden of Eden with all of the, the monkeys and the rainbows and every, well, rainbows came later, but all of the wonderful good things going on, that's what's happening in, in Genesis 2.25. I wanna say something though about this. Some people add to the Genesis account concerning relationships between women and men. And what they're doing is they take what happened later on in humanity's sinful history and they project that back into the Garden of Eden, right into Genesis chapter two. And I'm thinking specifically of ideas of hierarchy, and authority, and that it's just not there. It's not in Genesis chapter two. And we have to allow scripture to build from historically what happened and what happened next. And we have to hold fast to what we clearly know and what's clearly defined. So we have equal partners who are in a great relationship with each other and with God. And uh, that's what we have up in Genesis ch chapter two. So maybe we, what we need to do is move on to exercise three, where we talk about identifying references to human relationships that do involve authority, or do they? In the first question underneath that third section, it says, in each of the following passages, God is described as creator and commander. Therefore, God has authority. From the following passages, who had ultimate authority? And the first verse that we look at is Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. 
So who would we say had ultimate authority there? Well, verse 16 gives that away. And the Lord God commanded the man, etc. So God, uh, it was God's idea to make the Garden of Eden, well, to make the man. And, and then it was God's idea. And then God told him, you know, how this, how it's going to work. So we have clearly, there is a hierarchy here in that God is God and we're not. Um, so that's the authority if you want to find it in the, in the Genesis 2 passage. Yeah, agreed. And so then we look at verse 19, chapter 2, verse 19. Is there anything about authority there? Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was his name. So God reserved the naming of the creatures to the man. Uh, God could have named all the creatures. I'm sure God had an idea what what the real essence of each creature was. But then the actual name was up to the man. And so he gave names, verse 20, to all the livestock, the birds of the air, the beasts of the field. And uh, some of the names probably sounded great and appropriate. Some of them might have sounded silly. I don't know. But uh, it was the man's job. And so the man was doing what we have summed up in Genesis chapter 1. God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the livestock and over all the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground. That's Genesis 1, 26. Yeah, so there is a form of authority there, but it's humankind over the creatures, as it were. But then in Genesis 2, 21 and 22, is there anything about authority in that section? So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, God took one of the man's ribs or part of the man's side and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made woman from that part of the body he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. Some people think that he gave her to the man. doesn't say that. And later on in Genesis 3, even after the attack, the man doesn't say that either. He says, the woman whom you gave to be with me. So we've got a side-by-side human pair here, and there's no hierarchy or authority at all. In fact, even when we go back to Genesis 1, 28 and 29, and we search for some sort of hierarchy, we just don't see it. And then when we look at these verses and compare them with those verses, chapter 1 and chapter 2, we still don't see any hierarchy that God gave to either of the human beings over each other. I mean, God gave the moon and the sun two different jobs to do, but it doesn't seem like God did that with human beings. I would like to talk about this situation where the man and the woman each knew God first in this model for marriage. Yeah. And this is step number one. They're not married yet, and most of the people in the world I know get married before they're 50 or 60. They get married when they're younger. And so there's a real important time to focus on a, mar- on the, on a, on a ministry to children, uh, on a ministry to young adults before they get married. It's wonderful that they can both know God personally and they can come together then as two believers. There are some t- statistics that say that when you're age 11 is the most likely age that you're going to come to Christ. Well, that's, it depends on the individual. I did happen to come to Christ when I was 11, by the way. But how do you explain this in a world where they don't talk about philosophical categories? In Africa, I was given the example and I adopted it and tried it and it worked very well. You talk about things in a concrete relational way. So you actually, for in this case, I held up my hand 
And this is a, my hand's not made out of concrete, but it's something you can touch and hold. And so there are five fingers and of the five, the thumb is the bigger and the thickest and the strongest. And so it represents something. What does it represent? So I would hold up the hand and I would say, I'd have all my fingers and my thumb all tucked together. And I'd say, now this thumb represents the creator of the universe. This is God the Father who made the heavens and the earth and, and made people and made everything. And this is, the creator is, is wonderful. Look at the beautiful earth. Look at all the joys that we have here, the good food and song and all that we have. This is who the creator is. Now, the next is we have the forefinger right next to it, and it looks kind of like the thumb, but it's not as big and as strong as the thumb. The problem is, is that we are not perfect. We don't know everything, and we are not pure like God the Father, the Creator is. And so a friend from Cameroon, a country in Africa, taught me to pull the thumb away at that point and to say, we have a problem because we are separated from God. God is perfect and pure and cannot abide us being uh, sinful and separate as we are. And so the thumb, the source of all life, is pulled away from the rest of the hand, which is a problem, and they, and they understand that. So how do we solve that problem? Well, we go to the, the next finger, which on my hand is the tallest of all the fingers, and I'd say, now this is the tall tree in the forest. And it stands above all else and it draws our attention. It stands for a wooden cross. And on this wooden cross, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, he died and he poured out his blood and it's there to cover over our sins. But for the moment, we still have the thumb separated from the forefinger because the cross covered with the blood has nothing to do with the forefinger. What we really need to do is to have the forefinger cross through or cross under that middle digit so that we come up with the fourth finger. We need to be on the far side of the cross so that when God looks at us and we're in position number four, he doesn't see us, he sees the cross and he doesn't see our sins. And so it would take a miracle to move your finger from one side to the other. And that's exactly what you need is we need a miracle for God to pass us under the blood of the cross of Jesus. Now, when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't stay there. He was buried, and then he rose again, and he's now in heaven. He's seated in heaven. The fifth finger helps us understand more about God and about us. You notice how tiny it is? And in my culture, we call it the baby finger or the little finger. And in Africa, they understand about babies. Everybody knows there's two things you have to have with a baby, uh, maybe three. First, you have to have life. And the life that you have is from the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. So when we are we pass under the blood of the cross, then we are born again, and we have the life of the Holy Spirit inside us. Then there's two things every baby needs. One is food, and the other one is to be carried. You can't just lay a baby down on the ground, and you have to carry that baby. And then two, you have to feed the baby. And so we need to be fed by the Word of God. That's the milk of the Word. So we need to learn the Scripture. And then secondly, we need to be with other believers who will carry us and care for us. So that's the gospel on five fingers, sums it up, and I think it's a wonderful thing. And at this point, now we haven't said this before in the, the Eden podcast, but I'd like to say it. Do you have that personal relationship with Jesus, with God, with the Trinity, with God the Father, with God the Son, with God the Holy Spirit? Have you passed from one side of the cross to the other side of the cross? Has the blood of Jesus Christ covered over your sins hidden that? Has the Holy Spirit come in to you and you've been born again as a little baby in Christ? And now you're growing, you're studying the Word of God. We're enjoying studying the scriptures together because the Holy Spirit is in you and speaks to you. 
we're blind and we're dead to our, in our sins until we come to that point where Christ is born into our hearts. And the way that happens is we ask for it. We say, well, we ask Jesus to come into our heart, but he's not going to come into our heart if we're full of sin. So we ask, we repent. We say we turn from our sin. Metanoia is the Greek word. So you stop going one way and you turn and you go the other way. And at that moment then, as we reject our own sins because Jesus rejects it and it's covered over by his blood, then we ask the Holy Spirit to come into our hearts and we are born again and we are now living everlasting life in Christ. So if you haven't asked Christ to do that, you can. You can do it right now. And you can just ask Jesus, say, Jesus, I repent of my sin. Please forgive me. And thank you for dying for me, giving me new life, and help me now to live in a way that's pleasing for you. The model marriage is a Christian marriage. The model marriage is the Garden of Eden. And then life together in the church will actually go beyond Eden. We'll go beyond marriage. We'll go and give us more of a fullness, a completeness that we get to live, all because of what God three in one planned from the beginning. Thanks for listening to the Eden Podcast. Do you have your own copy of the Book of Eden, Genesis 2 to 3, and our other books on the seven key passages on women and men in the Bible? Visit our website at true316.com. Do you want to go deeper? You're invited to enroll in the current study unit of True School. Take a look. Go to true316.com slash school.